welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Old Testament book of the minor prophet Zechariah. The book of Zechariah contains more visions and prophecies regarding Christ and the end times than all the rest of the minor prophets combined. The role of the prophet was to tell God's people what God thinks about them and what they are doing or not doing. God cares about his people and he cares about everything in their lives. The book of Zechariah reminds us of God's constant thoughts and teaches us about his plans for the future so that we have hope when we need it. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Zechariah as we look for Christ in the Old Testament. Turn in your Bible. Last time I'm going to say this to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah 14, as we come to the conclusion of this study through the book of Zechariah. And I think I've already said this, but um, um, I will start preparing for the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew next. So uh, start reading, study ahead, so you can check me out, make sure I'm doing it right, right? Right? Yes, yes. Going to do my best. Okay, so if you've ever watched a movie more than once, then you know that you watch it the second time differently than you watch it the first time. When you watch a movie the second time, you have a little bit more information. You know how the movie's going to end, so when you watch it the second time, you see things differently. You see details that you might have missed the first time. Things make a little bit more sense the second time you watch it. It's just different, and it's because you know how it's going to end. And God spoke to men like Zechariah, and told them the end of the story. He told them how all of these things are going to end. And the reason why we study this is so that as we're going through the story of life, the story of this world, we have a better understanding of what's going on because we know how the movie ends, right? Do we not know how the movie ends? Say yes, we know because we've talked about it a lot. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more today. So Zechariah is going to end his prophetic writings by telling us some of the things about the end of the story, about the end of things, the end of times. So this is a good news, bad news kind of story. So for those of you that like good news, good. If if you don't like bad news, too bad. Let's pray and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Heavenly Father, we do come thanking you for this opportunity to gather and as we've just come uh, um, out of this Thanksgiving um, season and holiday, Lord, uh, we know that um, because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that we always have something to be thankful for. And, and so because of that, Lord, we, uh, we, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the celebration of Thanksgiving. But Lord, let it be a reminder to us that um, Thanksgiving is not something that we do once a year. It's something we do every day, and we do it regularly because of what Jesus did for us. So we open up this word today as we look at the end of things, and we pray, Lord, that you would move in our hearts and minds to understand what you would say to your church in a way that would that shape and mold us and help us maybe to live a different life than maybe one that we were thinking about or maybe one that, 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 that life would just incline us toward, but we would live deliberately, intentionally with the the reality of these things we're going to look at today. We praise you, Lord, and thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the, the last chapter of the book of Zechariah opens with words that ought to fill us as believers with a sense of joy in many respects, but also with a sense of, uh, well, uh, uh, the reality of sadness. Um, and so let's, let's read the words, and then, we'll, and then we'll talk about it. It says, verse 1 of chapter 14, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Now, in some respects, we ought to say, Hallelujah. So thankful that the day of the Lord is coming. That means Jesus is coming back. Somebody say hallelujah. Amen. Praise God. Jesus is coming back. That's good news, but not for everybody, especially when we're looking at this phrase, the day of the Lord. While that's good news for us, that's something for us to rejoice in, the reality is that something else is attached to that, that it's not, it's not something that... that that we should be joyful about. We recognize the truth of it. We recognize the rightness of it. We recognize the fact that it is the right thing to happen, but it's not something that we ought to be, we ought to be um, joyous about, about the reality of what's going to happen. And it's that those who don't know Jesus, those who don't know God, are going to experience the consequences of not knowing God. The, these words, the day of the Lord is coming, ought to strike terror in the heart of those who don't have Christ. They won't. It won't because they don't believe. You know, we can say all day long, turn or burn, baby, turn or burn. And they're not going to get it because they don't believe. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in God's word. And so even though we know the truth and we know what's coming for them, we know what their future is, and we know how terrible it's going to be, because you study the scriptures, it's terrible. Nothing in this world has ever even, even approaches how terrible it's going to be. And they're going to have to go through it. And they're going to do it blindly. They don't believe. But just because they don't believe, just because someone doesn't believe that something is true doesn't change the fact that it is true, right? It's true. It's going to come to pass. The phrase, the day of the Lord, occurs 30 times in the Bible. And the, the concept around it occurs many, many times more than that. But the, but the literal phrase, the day of the Lord, occurs 30 times. If you do a study of that, you cannot get away from that without recognizing that it's bad news. It's clear that it is something that people should not be looking forward to. Isaiah 13, 9, one of those really easy ones to understand. It says, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. We've been talking about in the book of Zechariah, that God has this plan for the Jews. And, and you know, depending on your, you know, your mentality, your attitude toward Israel and the Jews, you know how we, as a church, how we feel about Israel. If you've been around for any length of time, you know how we feel about Israel. But one of the realities is that God has this plan for the Jews, and it's a good plan. But first he has to deal with the, the wickedness of this world. He has to deal with sin that's in this world. The Bible has a lot to say about the day of the Lord. 
also the times leading up to it. We use another term for this idea of the day of the Lord. We, we refer to it as the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is interesting. Here we are getting ready. We just started talking. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving, so it's time to start talking about Christmas, right? <laughs> it's just like, okay, we're in the Christmas season. Woohoo! I'm imagining decorations showing up in the church any minute now. Not right this second, ladies. (laughs) Settle down. Before Jesus comes back in this event that we refer to as the second coming, things are going to get hard for the Jews. That that this this time period that leads up to the day of the Lord is not a single day, though it's culminated by a single event on a single day. The events that lead up to it are, are, are some very difficult things. We talk, it's a period of time that we refer to as the tribulation, seven years of unprecedented, terrible things happening on the earth as God pours out his wrath upon a God-hating, Christ-rejecting, wicked world. And the Jews are going to be right in the middle of that because they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. In verse, continuing on in verse 1, <clears throat> And your spoil will be divided in your midst, and I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. In the last chapter, we learn that two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed in the last days before the second coming, before the day of the Lord um, is culminated, and all the nations are going to gather against Israel. We see that we see that shaping up. It's been going on for a long time. We see nations, you know, just lining up and 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 fighting against and resisting the United Nations. You know, on a regular basis, is resisting Israel. And if you and if you if you study it from a uh, from a completely detached viewpoint, you wouldn't understand it. If you look at the way the world relates to the tiny little nation of Israel, you would wonder why in the world do they even care about them? It's because God loves them. And there's somebody out there that hates them. And he is lining up these nations against Israel. It's not natural. It's demonic. It is satanic. And it's going to go on right until the last days. Verse verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. So all these nations are lining up against Israel and God is, you know, he's going to send Jesus down at some point, and Jesus is going to deal with them. He is going to stand and fight against them. When he comes, he's going to come back to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you remember correctly, if you, in the Gospels, we read that where did Jesus ascend from? The Mount of Olives. He ascended from the Mount of Olives, and, and as he was there, as the disciples were watching him go up, they're like, okay, now what do we do? Acts 1, verse 9 says this, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked up steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, 
thinking like, okay, is he coming back? No. Yes, not right now. But behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, these would be angels, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus came, he lived, we're going to be celebrating his birth in a few weeks, and, and that's a reality, that's a, that's a point of history. It was one of the most radical things of in human history. He lived these 33 years, he died on the cross and, and paid for our sins so that we can, so we can have forgiveness of sins. He ascended to heaven, back up to heaven, where he came from, with his father, and he's going to come back. He said over and over again, I will be back. And when I come back, then things are going to change. When he comes back, the Mount of Olives will split in two. You know, we, we sometimes... You know, some people will read stuff like that and say, well, you know, they'll, I mean, I, I don't know if you've heard it, you know, there are studies about, you know, rifts and, you know, fault lines in Israel and whatnot. God doesn't need any of that. You know, God created the entire universe with the spoken word. Can he split, you know, a mountain in two without fault lines? Uh, yes, he can. I mean, he's, he's, he's done much bigger things than that. I mean, we ought to, when, we're, when we're looking at Scripture, we don't have to explain it. I'm going to share another one a little bit later on. You don't have to explain it using human terms. He's God. Could he use natural things? Could he use something that we can understand and explain? Yes, he could. But we don't need those things. I would much rather have a miraculous answer than some natural answer, right? Reminds me how amazing God is. Verse 5. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. Now this valley that's created, a big valley, a wide valley, may be the valley of Jehoshaphat where God will judge the nations. In Joel 3, 2, it says this, I will gather all nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people. Notice that, on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided uh, my land. We've talked about this before. That, that we talk about, like if you ever, you know about the two-state solution, right? That's been, they've been trying to, push the two-state solution for decades. What does that mean? What, is, what does that include? Dividing up the land of Israel. God doesn't want that. God doesn't want that. And those who are, are, are for that, God's going to stand again. He's going to judge them. And when, he's, when he judges the nations, what is he going to judge them based on? Their treatment of the nation of Israel. Why? Because they're his chosen people. They are his beloved. Love them or hate them, God loves them. And if we're going to be God's people, we, sh we should probably love what God loves, right? <laughs> it's always something banging and making noise around here. Also notice that when Jesus comes back, when the Messiah comes back, at the second coming, he's not going to be alone. In Jude 14 and 15, it says this, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, saying, 
also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, meaning a, a, a great vast multitude, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude really liked the word ungodly. You can tell. There's a time coming that, that all of this stuff is going to be dealt with. All of this stuff we see going on. We watch the news. We see, we see people holding up these bizarre signs saying these absolutely horrendous things. All that's going to be dealt with. And we've, and we've got to remind ourselves that that is true. And we, and we have to recognize that God will do it at the right time. That while we want to see it done, when do we want to see it done? Yesterday would have been a good day. If not yesterday, then today. But God's got a plan. And we can trust him because his plan is good and right. But if you're a believer, then you're one of his saints, right? We understand that. You don't have to be dead to be a saint. You know, just be one of God's people. You're a saint. You may not act like one, but you are one. Not only will the Mount of Olives split, but there's going to be other unusual things happening. And, and, and ultimately, in that period, of, there's going to be <laughs> seven years of unusual things happening on the world. But even on that moment, there will be. Verse 6, And it shall come to pass on a day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. All these things are going to be going on. All these radical things are going to be going on in the world. And, and as we look back in history and we look through the scriptures, we see that that was a pretty normal occurrence. When Jesus died on the cross, right? Remember, unusual things happened. You know, you know, people, you know people are, you know, you know, rising up from the dead in the, in the tombs. The, the veil is split in two in the temple. The, the, there's an earthquake. The, it, it, it becomes dark as midnight for three hours in the middle of the day. God's going to make it clear. Something's going on here. Nobody's going to be able to say, hey, I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. I missed it. Everything's going to be different. Verse 8. And in that day it shall be that the living... In that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter, it shall occur. The eastern sea is the Dead Sea and the western sea is the Mediterranean. The one elsewhere in Scripture tells us that in this time period that the Dead Sea is going to stop being dead, that it's going to spring to life. And they're going to, and fishermen, they're going to fish from it again, and it's going to be this glorious thing. If you've ever been there, it's a fascinating experience to go to the Dead Sea, floating in the Dead Sea. Anybody done that? It's weird, weird, but it's cool. Verse 30, uh, Ezekiel 37 also refers to something like this, and the idea of living waters is waters that bring life, that, that it's something that brings life. And Jesus alluded to this when he was in the, in the temple area in John chapter 7, verse 37, he said this, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Something happens when we receive Christ and believe him and, and, and live like we believe him. It, 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 it come, out of us comes something that brings life to others. Now, now they have to receive it. You know, we, you know, we can offer life to anyone, but if they don't receive it, they, don't, they just don't get it. But, but we all know this because most of us have experienced the living waters of someone else. Most of us are here because somebody was allowing the living waters of the, of the reality of who God is and what God's word says and the, and the reality of what Christ did for them out. And because they did, we received it and the Holy Spirit made it alive in us, brought life to us through that. And then God wants to turn around and use us to do the same thing with others. So one of the things we tell you that, you know, that, that your faith is not, you know, you know, my faith is private. Nonsense. Private faith is no faith. The faith that God gave us is meant to be shared with others. Who? Anyone that God puts into your, into your circle. If somebody comes into your circle, it's someone that God wants to show your faith to. They're going to see it anyways. The question is, what are they going to see? That, that brings us to our key verse of, of this chapter, verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be. The Lord is one. His name is one. The, the Bible makes it clear that, that Jesus is the rightful king of the whole world. Not just the church, not just believers, but the whole world. In Revelation 19, verses 15 and 16, it says this, now out of his mouth, which is referring to the second coming, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations for their rebellion and unbelief, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verses like that, we read those and we say, well, that's not the Jesus I want. I don't want that, I don't want that Jesus. That's kind of a harsh Jesus. You know, fierceness of the wrath of God. That's for unbelievers. For us, I appreciate that Jesus. I, I recognize the importance that that's, that's how he's going to fix the brokenness of this world. Anyone who is not yielded to God's sovereign authority should fear verses like this and should humble themselves before God so they don't have to face this Jesus. The Jesus that I worship, the Jesus that I love, the Jesus that I, I most appreciate is the good shepherd Jesus. He shepherds my soul. I don't fear him. I don't have any fear of Jesus because I know he died for my sins. And when I yielded my heart to him, when I yielded my, my will to him as, as well as I'm able to do that, I don't have anything to fear. This is for those who won't do that. There are many who will not yield to Jesus. They will not yield to his sovereign authority. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. Not will be, is. And right now, many are not yielded to him. But that's going to change. When he steps down on the Mount of Olives, all of that changes. 
the whole world will acknowledge that there is only one king. There's only one Lord. There's only one God. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God is also, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. People may not bow today, but they will then. And they won't have a choice. They, they, they will, without hesitation, do it. Even though they are unwilling to, the, the, the reality of who Jesus is will become so clear that they won't have a choice. They'll just have to. Then our, our text continues with a reminder of God's love for the city of Jerusalem. And the land, verse 10, shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from the Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hanalel Hanel, to the king's wine presses. God's going to raise up the city of Jerusalem. He's going to lift it up. The idea there is to lift it up, to make it, to make it a high point, a place of, of importance and, and, and respect and honor and turn everything around it. He's going to change the whole topography of the land is, is the sense that we get from this. And, and they're going to be able, the people in Jerusalem will be able to dwell in peace. No more terrorists, no more rockets, no more, you know, worried about Iran launching nuclear missiles into, into the land. They're going to live without that fear for the first time in a very, very long time. And then it continues, our text continues, turns our attention to those who would resist and fight against Israel. Verse, verse 12. And this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all people who fought against Jerusalem. This is lovely. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem, and all the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and on the mule, on the camel and on the donkey, and all the cattle there will, that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. God's going to deal with all of those who would come against Israel. And what, I mean, this, either you love Israel or hate Israel, but don't resist them. Don't fight against them. Now, this plague, it's impossible to say what this plague is. You know, what could cause their flesh to dissolve while they're standing? You know, people get, have all kinds of weird ideas. Again, personally, God's just going to do something, you know, and it's going to happen. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, it sounds pretty terrible to me, right? I don't even want to see it. We were talking about, we were talking about horror movies earlier, which ugh, they give me the creeps just thinking about them. 
And, uh, you know, and, and whatever this is, is probably worse than any of those movies you've ever watched. Yeah, it could be something natural. It could be a weapon of some kind. It could just be God dealing with them. You know, we, we hate, again, we, and I don't know what your attitude is about judgment. I don't know how you, how you feel about hearing about judgment. A lot of people don't like to hear about it. You know, they don't like to think about God that way. They don't like to think about God as a, as a judge. And not, a, not just a judge, but a fierce judge who will pour out his unrestrained wrath upon people. They don't like to think about that. But God tells us in advance it's coming. Why? So that you can escape it. So that people don't have to experience it. So that when it does come, they shouldn't be surprised by it. Judgment is something we should never look forward to. We should never rejoice in the idea that God is going to judge, but we should recognize that it's right and true, that God is good to do it, God is right to do it, and it, and it is actually good, even though there's elements of it that just will creep us out like this. But once judgment's out of the way, you know, the, the reality is, is that, that God created us, all of us, for a purpose, right? And that one of, those, one of the elements of that purpose was to worship him. We are created to worship. When we gather together to worship, we're doing what we are created for. Now, we should do that ultimately all the time, every day, whenever we have a chance, everything we do, every breath that we take, every word that we express, every thought that we think ought to be an expression or an act of worship, ought to be. Usually isn't because, you know, we're humans and human stuff gets in the way of you know, what we ought to be doing with our relationship with God. But once judgment is out of the way, and it will happen after the second coming, after Jesus comes and he deals with all of his enemies, then people are going to be free to worship God. And they're going to be able to do it without fear. In verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. It shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to, to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. And this shall be the punishment of Excuse me, of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this is re likely referring to the period of time that we refer to as the millennium, that time when Jesus comes after the second coming and he establishes his earthly kingdom on the earth, a time that, that, that as bad as the tribulation is, as bad as God's final dealing with the wicked of this world is, the millennium is the exact opposite. It is everything good that can possibly be upon the earth. It is Jesus ruling on the earth for 1,000 years without Satan. Satan is bound for that 1,000 years. There's no temptation from him. There's, you know, we have our, you know, humans have their own temptations, but not from him. He's not, he's not corrupting governments. He's not doing any of those things. And so humans are, are left to worship God without that. And Jesus is ruling them 
personally. And he's doing it, it tells us also, with a rod of iron, which means you know, people will not be free to sin. Yeah, and and he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, aren't we free in Christ? Yeah, you're free to do pretty much anything you want to do. And unfortunately, sometimes you do some stupid stuff. I mean, we all do. We all make mistakes. We all choose. We make bad choices. We do things that we know we're not supposed to do. There's a part of me that wishes I couldn't do it. You know why? Because the perfect life is one lived in absolute obedience to God. That's the perfect life. When we do what we want, when we do what we are free to do in this life and make choices that, you know, part of us, you know, we, there's always something inside of us that says, you know, we probably shouldn't do that. We do it anyway. And then we pay a price for it. I wish, I wish we didn't have to. You know, today, people are getting away with living how they want, doing what they want to do. They're getting away without worshiping God. They don't worship God. They don't care to worship God. They don't want to know God. They don't want to, they don't want to know what his word says. But during the millennium, that's not going to be the case. During the millennium, during the thousand-year reign of Christ, there will, be, there will be peace on the earth, but there will also be righteousness on the earth. And it will be a mandated righteousness. Now, we don't really understand what all of that actually looks like, but we know it to be true. And the world will be totally, radically transformed at the second coming. They will be restored back to a time, the time like it was in the Garden of Eden. It will be glorious and beautiful and prosperous and flourishing. But only after the wickedness has been punished and Christ reigns. It will be restored to this glorious way. Now, today... People give little or no thought to holiness. They just go through life doing whatever they're doing. But after Jesus establishes his kingdom on the earth, that's going to change. Verse 20. In that day, this will be the day that Christ reigns, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will become, shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. You know, many people mistakenly think of the word holiness as sinless or perfect. And they get this idea that somebody is holy because they, they don't make they don't do anything wrong. That's that's not what the word means at all. The word means a better better word to describe the word holiness would be um, sacred, dedicated, consecrated. The word sacred means dedicated to or set apart for the worship of a deity. The idea of being separated from one thing to another, being separated from this world, spiritually separated from this world to separated to God, separated from doing the things of the world to separated to worship God, to be God's people. This idea of separation. When, when they when they were making the garments for the high priest in Exodus chapter 28, one of the things they did is they gave him a hat, and on the hat was a plate that said, holiness to the Lord. 
the exact same words that we see right here. Now, now, did that mean the high priest was perfect? <laughs> Not even close. I mean, he was just a man, but he was set apart. So when they looked upon him and they saw that plaque, they say, That's, this guy is set apart to worship and serve God. That, that's his role. That's his place. It also put a, 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 if you will, a conviction upon whoever's wearing it. If I'm wearing this, I probably ought to try to be it, right? You know, if I am, if I am, if I am holy, then I ought to act holy. I, I, if, I am, if I am spiritually set apart for worship to God, I should probably act in a way that is worthy, that is right for worshiping God. One of the problems with the world today is people, they're doing whatever they want, right? They're doing what they think is right, what they think is good. And we look at it and we say, wait a minute, that, but that's not good. It's not right. And they'll look at us like we're crazy. Jesus will put an end to all of that. The book ends with this, with this last verse, or these last words. In that day, the day that Christ comes back, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Canaanite is a is symbolic or representative, synonymous with immorality and wickedness. When, when the Israelites were told to go into the land and to literally just wipe it out, it was because for hundreds of years they had practiced a type of wickedness and immorality that had been unseen anywhere else in the world. It was terrible. And God said, I'm giving you this land, but you've got to get rid of all of them because... If you don't, you're going to do the same things they're doing. And you know what? Guess what happened? They didn't get rid of them, and what happened? They started doing the same things that they were doing. This world is the way that it is. This world is where it is because people are doing whatever they feel is good and right and not what God says is good and right. God is not trying to take anything away from us. He's not trying to, to deprive us of something. Like Satan, Satan told Eve in the garden, oh, God's holding back on you. You know, he's, kinda, he's trying to keep you away from this because that's, you know, that's good. It was a lie. And the same lie is being told to people every single day. People are take, going out and they're doing what God says is wrong, what God says is bad, what God says is evil and wicked. And to them, they're good. They're right. When Christ reigns, this world will know perfect peace, prosperity, and joy. That's the good news. The bad news, those who reject God's plan, those who reject Christ as the only way to God, have to experience the consequences of those choices. And we as believers ought to hate that. We ought to hate that there's anyone around us that might experience the consequences of rebelling against God, rejecting God. It ought to bother us. And if it doesn't bother us, we need to, tech, we need to check our hearts because that's God's heart. He hates the fact that anyone has to experience his judgment. This chapter began with the phrase, the day of the Lord is coming. That's not an idle threat. The day of the Lord is coming. For us, 
we know something's coming before that. That, that. that is preceded by an event that we refer to as the rapture. And at that point, we, as his, as his people, as believers in Jesus Christ, will be caught up into the air to be with him forever. And then, unprecedented suffering upon this earth. The good news for us is that Jesus comes and gets us. The bad news is that some, someone is going to be left behind, a great many someones. So the question is, how should we live as we wait? The reality is that Jesus is coming back. I mean, this, the, the second coming is coming, right? I mean, is there any question in our minds? The Bible says over and over, and how many times, I don't know how many times it says it. It says that, you know, anytime you see that phrase, in that day, it could be pointing to the second coming. The, the day of the Lord, um, and many other expressions like it, hundreds of times talking about it. It's going to happen, right? We know that. You know why we know it? Because it says it. God said it, we believe it. But how do we live as we wait? As we wait for what we believe is going to happen before it, as we, as we wait for the rapture, you know, we, we recognize that it could happen, right? But how do we live? First, live as if Jesus could come back at any moment. You know, the, the Bible tells us Jesus is coming back. There's no question about that. It does not tell us when. There are no conditions, there are no prophecies, there are no, there's nothing standing in the way from Jesus coming back right this very moment. I always wish that would happen, just as just I say that. We have to be careful about our attachments to this world. You know, we, we live in this world, we walk in this world, we work in this world, we're raising families in this world, and we have responsibilities, we have obligations to all of those things. But all of them, we have to be very careful about our attachments to those things. They always have to be second to our relationship with God, to our worship of God. And they have to be subordinated to those things. We have to do our obligations. We have to do our duties. We have to do all those things that are right and true, which the Bible tells us very clearly. But we do it all with the understanding that all of it's going to become obsolete when Jesus comes back. That we don't get so attached to it that it would bother us if Jesus came back. You know that's in a wrong place. If you have a situation, you know what, Jesus, if you would just wait until... Okay, that's a bad attitude. If, if I can just see my, my grandchildren grow up and, you know... No, no, no. When should Jesus come back? Now. We want him to come back now. Second, live as if Jesus is your king today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he is your king. Not will be. He is your king. And that means we yield to his sovereign authority in our lives. You know, do we go to Jesus and we ask him to comment on our lives, to, to point us in directions on how we're making choices and decisions? Do we, do we ask him to, to help us, to guide us, to direct us? 
Do you trust him? Do you trust him to take care of you? The Bible says he's not just your king, he is your shepherd, your good shepherd. He'll care for you. Do you act like that? Do you let him lead you? Third, live as holiness to the Lord Jesus. And we need to, act, we need to examine our lives and ask ourselves, is my life set apart for God? Is it set apart for Jesus? Am I, am I separated from this world? Do I, do I, do I act like I'm separated. It doesn't mean you're perfect. You're not going to be perfect. But are you acting as someone who is separated from this world? Is it set apart for sacred use? Do you look at your life as a tool in the hand of God for his use, for his glory? Or is your life all about you? Or all about your family? Or all about your dreams or all about you know, your happiness or your fulfillment or your success. Either your life is for you or your life is for God. And if we are gonna be holiness to the Lord, then our lives have to be for God. That doesn't mean necessarily you need to change anything in your life, but you may have to change how you think about the things of your life. Jesus coming back. When? We don't know, but it could be really soon. And if it is, shouldn't we be ready? Not just ready, shouldn't we be helping to get others ready? As if we are holy to the Lord, if we're set apart for holy use, one of the uses that God has for us is to share his message with as many as we can, either through word or deed or, or love, however God has made you. He's made you to let the world know about Jesus. Amen? Let's live like we believe that Jesus is coming back and he wants to use us until then. Heavenly Father, we come and we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love. And as we prepare to go out from this day, we, want to, we just want to say again that we're so thankful. I'm thankful, Lord God, for your word. I'm thankful, Lord God, that you told us the end of the story so that as we look at the things around this world that we can, we can understand better why things are the way that they are. And I, I also, Lord, I also thank you, Lord God, that you've given us your word so that we can, we can do our best to have your heart for the things that are going on in this world, so that we can love the things you love, that we can hate the things that you hate. And Lord, your word tells us very clearly, and as we've seen through the book of Zechariah, that you love Israel. And while as a, as a nation they are, they are they're, they're not walking the right path, that doesn't change the fact that you made eternal promises to them and that you will be their God and they will be your people. And Lord, and, and while we read this and we understand that, that that's not gonna be an easy path for them, Lord, it's our desire, Lord God, that some would escape the things that are coming. But we know that in the end, all Israel will be saved because your word says so. And so we thank you for that. And I thank you for these, your people. I pray for your blessing over them as they leave this place. I pray, Lord, that they would do so ready for your coming, 
that they would walk in, in humble obedience and, and surrender and submission to you as their king, and that, Lord, that they would be holiness of the Lord, set apart for your use, that through them you can be glorified, others can be blessed, and faith can grow. And we lift it all up to you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God bless you. We're gonna pray after a little while, so if you wanna hang out with us and pray, otherwise, go be holiness to the Lord today. Amen? Thank you for joining us on this exciting journey through the book of Zechariah. It is our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. If there's anything that we can do to help you with that, don't hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect and you'll find all the ways that you can connect with us there. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. You can send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.